Section 7 of Six Stories by George MacDonald This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 7 The Broken Swords Part 2 He reached it during the strike of a great part of the workmen, so that, though he found some difficulty in procuring employment, as might be expected from his ignorance of machine labour, he yet was sooner successful than he would otherwise have been. Possessed of a natural aptitude for mechanical operations, he soon became a tolerable workman, and he found that his previous education assisted to the fitting execution of those operations, even which were most purely mechanical. He found also at first that the unrelaxing attention requisite for the mastering of the many niceties of his work of necessity drew his mind somewhat from its brooding over his misfortune, hitherto almost ceaseless. Every now and then, however, a pang would shoot suddenly to his heart, and turn his face pale, even before his consciousness had time to inquire what was the matter. So by degrees, as attention became less necessary, and the nervo-mechanical action of his system increased with use, his thoughts again returned to their old misery. He would wake at night in his poor room, with the feeling that a ghostly nightmare sat on his soul, that a want, a loss, miserable, fearful, was present, that something of his heart was gone from him, and through the darkness he would hear the snap of the breaking sword and lie for a moment overwhelmed beneath the assurance of the incredible fact. Could it be true that he was a coward, that his honour was gone, and in its place a stain, that he was a thing for men, and worse for women, to point the finger at, laughing bitter laughter? Never lover or husband could have mourned with the same desolation over the departure of the loved. The girl alone, weeping scorching tears over her degradation, could resemble him in his agony as he lay on his bed and wept and moaned. His sufferings had returned with the greater weight, that he was no longer upheld by the divine air and the open heavens, whose sunlight now only reached him late in an afternoon, as he stood at his loom, through windows so coated with dust that they looked like frosted glass showing as it passed through the air to fall on the dirty floor how the breath of life was thick with dust of iron and wood and films of cotton amidst which his senses were now too much dulled by custom to detect the exhalations from greasy wheels and overtasked humankind nor could he find comfort in the society of his fellow-labourers true it was a kind of comfort to have those near him who could not know of his grief but there was so little in common between them that any interchange of thought was impossible. At least so it seemed to him. Yet sometimes his longing for human companionship would drive him out of his dreary room at night, and send him wandering through the lower part of the town, where he would gaze wistfully on the miserable faces that passed him, as if looking for someone, some angel, even there, to speak good will to his hungry heart. Once he entered one of those gin palaces, which, like the golden gates of hell, enticed the miserable to worse misery, and seated himself close to a half-tipsy, good-natured wretch, who made room for him on a bench by the wall. 
he was comforted even by this proximity to one who would not repel him but soon the paintings of warlike action of knights and horses and mighty deeds done with battle-axe and broadsword which adorned the panels all round drove him forth even from this heaven of the damned yet not before the impious thought had arisen in his heart that the brilliantly painted and sculptural roof with the gilded vine-leaves and bunches of grapes trained up the windows all lighted with the great shining chandeliers was only a microcosmic repetition of the bright heavens and the glowing earth that overhung and surrounded the misery of man the memory of how kindly they had comforted and elevated him at one period of his painful history not only banished the wicked thought but brought him more quiet in the resurrection of a past blessing than he had known for some time the period however was now at hand when a new grief followed by a new and more elevated activity was to do its part toward the closing up of the fountain of bitterness amongst his fellow labourers he had for a short time taken some interest in observing a young woman who had lately joined them there was nothing remarkable about her except when at first sight seemed a remarkable plainness a slight scar over one of her rather prominent eyebrows increased this impression of plainness but the first day had not passed before he began to see that there was something not altogether common in those deep eyes and the plain look vanished before a closer observation which also discovered in the forehead and the lines of the mouth traces of sorrow or other suffering there was an expression too in the whole face of fixedness of purpose without any hardness of determination her countenance altogether seemed the index to an interesting mental history signs of mental trouble were always an attraction to him in this case so great that he overcame his shyness and spoke to her one evening as they left the works he often walked home with her after that as indeed was natural seeing that she occupied an attic in the same poor lodging-house in which he lived himself the street did not bear the best character nor indeed would the occupations of all the inmates of the house have stood investigation but so retiring and quiet was this girl and so seldom did she go abroad after work hours that he had not discovered till then that she lived in the same street not to say the same house with himself he soon learned her history a very common one as outward events but not surely insignificant because common her father and mother were both dead and hence she had to find her livelihood alone, and amidst associations which were always disagreeable, and sometimes painful. Her quick womanly instinct might have discovered that he too had a history, for though, his mental prostration favouring the operation of outward influences, he had greatly approximated in appearance to those amongst whom he laboured, there were yet signs, besides the educated accent of his speech, which would have distinguished him to an observer but she put no questions to him nor made any approach towards seeking a return of the confidence she reposed in him it was a sensible alleviation to his sufferings to hear her kind voice and look in her gentle face as they walked home together and at length the expectation of this pleasure began to present itself in the midst of the busy dreary work hours as the shadow of a heaven to close up the dismal uninteresting day but one morning he missed her from her place and a keener pain passed through him than he had felt of late, for he knew that the plague was abroad, feeding in the low stagnant places of human abode, and he had but too much reason to dread that she might be now struggling in its grasp. 
he seized the first opportunity of slipping out and hurrying home. He sprang upstairs to her room. He found the door locked, but heard a faint moaning within. To avoid disturbing her while determined to gain an entrance, he went down for the key of his own door, with which he succeeded in unlocking hers, and so crossed her threshold for the first time. There she lay on her bed, tossing in pain, and beginning to be delirious. Careless of his own life, and feeling that he could not die better than in helping the only friend he had, certain likewise of the difficulty of finding a nurse for one in this disease and of her station of life, and sure likewise that there could be no question of propriety, either in the circumstances with which they were surrounded, nor in this case of terrible fever, almost as hopeless for her as dangerous to him, he instantly began the duties of a nurse, and returned no more to his employment. He had a little money in his possession, for he could not, in the way in which he lived, spend all his wages, so he proceeded to make her as comfortable as he could, with all the pent-up tenderness of a loving heart, finding an outlet at length. When a boy at home he had often taken the place of nurse, and he felt quite capable of performing its duties. Nor was his boyhood far behind yet, although the trials he had come through made it appear an age since he had lost his light heart so he never left her bedside, except to procure what was necessary for her. She was too ill to oppose any of its measures, or to seek to prohibit his presence. Indeed, by the time he had returned with the first medicine she was insensible, and she continued so through the whole of the following week, during which time he was constantly with her. That action produces feeling is as often true as its converse, and it is not surprising that, while he smoothed the pillow for her head, he should have made a nest in his heart for the helpless girl. Slowly and unconsciously he learned to love her. The chasm between his early associations and the circumstances in which he found her vanished as he drew near to the simple, essential womanhood. His heart saw hers and loved it, and he knew that, the centre once gained, he could, as from the fountain of life, as from the innermost secret of the holy place, the hidden germ of power and possibility, transform the outer intellect and outermost manners as he pleased. With what a thrill of joy, a feeling for a long time unknown to him, until now never known, in this form, or with this intensity, the thought arose in his heart that here lay one who some day would love him that he should have a place of refuge and rest, one to lie in his bosom and not despise him. For, he said to himself, I will call forth her soul from where it sleeps, like an unawakened echo in an unknown cave, and like a child of whom I once dreamed that was mine, and to my delight turned in fear from all besides and clung to me, this soul of hers will run with bewildered, half-sleeping eyes and tottering steps, but with a cry of joy on its lips, to me is the life-giver. She will cling to me and worship me. Then will I tell her, for she must know all, that I am low and contemptible, that I am an outcast from the world, and that if she receive me, she will be to me as God, and I will fall down at her feet and pray her for comfort, for life, for restoration to myself, and she will throw herself beside me and weep and love me, I know, and we will go through life together, working hard but for each other, and when we die, she shall lead me into paradise, as the prize her angel hand found cast on a desert shore from the storm of winds and waves, which I was too weak to resist, and raised and tended and saved. 
often did such thoughts as these pass through his mind while watching her bed alternated checked and sometimes destroyed by the fears which attended her precarious condition but returning with every apparent betterment or hopeful symptom i will not stop to decide the nice question how far the intention was right of causing her to love him before she knew his story if in the whole matter there was too much thought of self my only apology is the sequel one day the ninth from the commencement of her illness a letter arrived addressed to her which he thinking he might prevent some inconvenience thereby opened and read in the confidence of the love which already made her and all belonging to her appear his own it was from a soldier her lover it was plain that they had been betrothed before he left for the continent a year ago but this was the first letter which he had written to her it breathed changeless love and hope and confidence in her he was so fascinated that he read it through without pause laying it down he sat pale motionless almost inanimate from the hard-won sunny heights he was once more cast down into the shadow of death the second storm of his life began howling and raging with yet more awful lulls between is she not mine he said in agony do i not feel that she is mine who will watch over her as i who will kiss her soul to life as i shall she be torn away from me when my soul seems to have dwelt with hers for ever in an eternal house but have i not a right to her have i not given my life for hers is he not a soldier and are there not many chances that he may never return and it may be that although they were engaged in word soul has never touched soul with them their love has never reached that point where it passes from the mortal to the immortal the indissoluble and so in a sense she may yet be free will he do for her what i will do shall this precious heart of hers in which i see the buds of so many beauties be left to wither and die but here the voice within him cried out art thou the disposer of destinies wilt thou in the universe where the visible god hath died for the truth's sake do evil that a good which he might neglect or overlook may be gained leave thou her to him and do thou right and he said within himself now is the real trial for my life shall i conquer or no and his heart awoke and cried i will god forgive me for wronging the poor soldier a brave man brave at least is better for her than i a great strength arose within him and lifted him up to depart surely i may kiss her once he said for the crisis was over and she slept he stooped towards her face but before he had reached her lips he saw her eyelids tremble and he who had longed for the opening of those eyes as of the gates of heaven that she might love him stricken now with fear lest she should love him fled from her before the eyelids that hid such strife and such victory from the unconscious maiden had time to unclose but it was agony quietly to pack up his bundle of linen in the room below where he knew she was lying awake above with her dear pale face and living eyes what remained of his money except a few shillings he put up in a scrap of paper and went out with his bundle in his hand first to seek a nurse for his friend and then to go he knew not whither he met the factory people with whom he had worked going to dinner 
and amongst them a girl who had herself but lately recovered from the fever, and was yet hardly able for work. She was the only friend the sick girl had seemed to have amongst the women at the factory, and she was easily persuaded to go and take charge of her. He put the money in her hand, begging her to use it for the invalid, and promising to send the equivalent of her wages for the time he thought she would have to wait on her. This he easily did by the sale of a ring, which, beside his mother's watch, was the only article of value he had retained. He begged her likewise not to mention his name in the matter, and was foolish enough to expect she would entirely keep the promise she had made him. Wandering along the street, purposeless now and bereft, he spied a recruiting party at the door of a public house, and on coming nearer found, by one of those strange coincidences which do occur in life, and which have possibly their root in a hidden and wondrous law, that it was a party, perhaps a remnant, of the very regiment in which he had himself served, and in which his misfortune had befallen him. Almost simultaneously which with the shock which the sight of the well-known number of the soldiers' knapsacks gave him, arose in his mind the romantic, ideal thought of enlisting in the ranks of this same regiment, and recovering as a private soldier and unknown that honour which as officer he had lost. To this determination the new necessity in which he now stood for action and change of life doubtless contributed, though unconsciously. He offered himself to the sergeant, and notwithstanding that his dress indicated a mode of life unsuitable as the antecedent to a soldier's, his appearance and the necessity for recruits combined led to his easy acceptance. The English armies were employed in expelling the enemy from an invaded and helpless country. Whatever might be the political motives which had induced the government to this measure, the young man was now able to feel that he could go and fight, individually and for his part, in the cause of liberty. He was free to possess his own motives for joining in the execution of the schemes of those who commanded his commanders. With a heavy heart, but with more of inward hope and strength than he had ever known before, he marched with his comrades to the seaport and embarked. It seemed to him that because he had done right in his last trial, here was a new glorious chance held out to his hand. True, it was a terrible change to pass from a woman in whom he had hoped to find healing, into the society of rough men, to march with the mit gleichem tritt und schritt, up to the bristling bayonets, or the horrid vacancy of the cannon-mouth. But it was the only cure for the evil that consumed his life. He reached the army in safety, and gave himself with religious assiduity to the smallest duties of his new position. No one had a brighter polish on his arms, or whiter belts, than he. In the necessary moments he soon became precise to a degree that attracted the attention of his officers, while his character was remarkable for all the virtues belonging to a perfect soldier. One day, as he stood sentry, he saw the eyes of his colonel intently fixed on him. He felt his lip quiver, but he compressed and stilled it, and tried to look as unconscious as he could which effort was assisted by the formal bearing required by his position. Now the colonel, such had been the losses of his regiment, had been promoted from a lieutenancy in the same, and had belonged to it at the time of the ensign's degradation. Indeed, had not the changes in the regiment been so great, he could hardly have escaped so long without discovery. But the poor fellow would have felt that his name was already free of reproach, 
if he had seen what followed on the close inspection which had awakened his apprehensions, and which, in fact, had convinced the colonel of his identity with the disgraced ensign. With a hasty and less soldierly step than usual, the colonel entered his tent, threw himself on his bed, and wept like a child. When he rose, he was overheard to say these words, and these only escaped his lips. He is nobler than I. But this officer showed himself worthy of commanding such men as this private, for right nobly did he understand and meet his feelings. He uttered no word of the discovery he had made till years afterwards, but it soon began to be remarked that whenever anything arduous or in any manner distinguished had to be done, this man was sure to be of the party appointed. In short, as often as he could, the colonel set him in the forefront of the battle. Passing through all with wonderful escape, he was soon as much noticed for his reckless bravery as hitherto for his precision in the discharge of duties, bringing only commendation and not honour. But his final lustration was at hand. A great part of the army was hastening, by forced marches, to raise the siege of a town which was already on the point of falling into the hands of the enemy. Forming one of a reconnoitring party, which preceded the main body at some considerable distance, he and his companions came suddenly upon one of the enemy's outposts, occupying a high and on one side precipitous rock, a short way from the town which it commanded. Retreat was impossible, for they were already discovered, and the bullets were falling amongst them like the fist of a hailstorm. The only possibility of escape remaining for them was a nearby hopeless improbability. It lay in forcing the post on this steep rock, which, if they could do before assistance came to the enemy, they might perhaps be able to hold out by means of its defences till the arrival of the army. Their position was at once understood by all, and, by a sudden simultaneous impulse, they found themselves halfway up the steep ascent, and in the struggle of a close conflict, without being aware of any order to that effect from their officer. But their courage was of no avail. The advantages of the place were too great and in a few minutes the whole party was cut to pieces, or stretched helpless on the rock. Our youth had fallen amongst the foremost, for a musket-ball had grazed his skull, and laid him insensible. But consciousness slowly returned, and he succeeded at last in raising himself, and looking around him. The place was deserted. A few of his friends, alive but grievously wounded, lay near him. The rest were dead. It appeared that, learning the proximity of the English forces from this rencontre with the part of their advanced guard, and dreading lest the town, which was on the point of surrendering, should, after all, be snatched from their grasp, the commander of the enemy's forces had ordered an immediate and general assault, and had for this purpose recalled from their outposts the whole of his troops thus stationed, that he might make the attempt with the utmost strength he could accumulate." As the youth's power of vision returned, he perceived, from the height where he lay, that the town was already in the hands of the enemy. But looking down into the level space immediately below him, he started to his feet at once. For a girl, bareheaded, was fleeing towards the rock, pursued by several soldiers. "'Aha!' said he, divining her purpose, the soldiers behind and the rock before her. "'I will help you to die.' and he stooped and wrenched from the dead fingers of a sergeant the sword which they clenched by the bloody hilt. A new throb of life pulsed through him to his very finger-tips, 
and on the brink of the unseen world he stood, with the blood rushing through his veins in a wild dance of excitement. One who lay near him wounded, but recovered afterwards, said that he looked like one inspired. With a keen eye he watched the chase. The girl drew nigh, and rushed up the path near which he was standing. Close on her footsteps came the soldiers, the distance gradually lessening between them. Not many paces higher up was a narrower part of the ascent, where the path was confined by great stones or pieces of rock. Here had been the chief defence in the preceding assault, and in it lay many bodies of his friends. Thither he went and took his stand. On the girl came, over the dead, with rigid hands and flying feet, the bloodless skin drawn tight on her features, and her eyes awfully large and wild. She did not see him, though she bounded past so near that her hair flew in his eyes. "'Never mind,' said he, "'we shall meet soon.' And he stepped into the narrow path just in time to face her pursuers, between her and them. Like the red lightning, the bloody sword fell, and a man beneath it. Cling, clang, went the echoes in the rocks. And another man was down, for in his excitement he was destroying angel to the breathless pursuers. His stature rose, his chest dilated, and as the third foe fell dead, the girl was safe, for her body lay a broken, empty, but undesecrated temple at the foot of the rock. That moment his sword fell in shivers from his grasp. The next instant he fell, pierced to the heart, and his spirit rose triumphant, free, strong, and calm, above the stormy world, which at length lay vanquished beneath him. End of section 7